High Praise Podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Garrett, Youth Pastor at High Praise Panama City. I want to thank you for downloading today's podcast. No matter if you just missed a service or if you happen to stumble across our show, we believe and we pray that God is going to bless you through today's episode. So open up your hearts, receive what God has in store for you. Um, so we're talking about Jesus. Um, I'll be honest, tonight is going to be a little bit more teaching than it is preaching. And if you don't know what that means, um, you'll find out. So um, open up your Bibles. Who here, t- are any of y'all like note takers? Anyone avid note takers? I like taking notes. Uh, so if you're a note person, this night is for you. Um, this is going to be a lot of stuff for you to, to write down and save for later. Um, but I am going to move quickly Um, I've got a lot of scripture, a lot of things I just kind of want to get across to you. So if you're one of those note people and feel like I lose you, just listen. We will have this on the podcast. You can go back, take notes later, and all that fun stuff. But I do want to get some things across to you about Jesus's life. Um, How many of you think, just by raise of hands, who would say Jesus had an easy life? Who here would say that um, Jesus, I don't want to word this, um, who here thinks Jesus' first 30 years of life were easy? I'll put it that way. Nobody? No one? How many, okay, how many of you know what Jesus did for a living? Maybe. Hey, Mary Davis. Good to see you, kid. Um, sorry, ADHD. Um, Mary messed me up. Anyway, I want to talk about three different habits of Jesus, things that if you pay attention um, in Scripture and the New Testament, in, and especially in like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will pick up on these key phrases that they use to describe Jesus that tell us a lot about basically how he lived his everyday life. Because I think there's somewhat of a misconception that Jesus' life was like... Um, Super inconsistent, that he just kind of wandered aimlessly, that he um, just was kind of like a, a, a nomad to a sense. And if you pay attention, Jesus had habits. And if you actually even track um, how Jesus traveled from place to place, he was pretty consistent about where he was and when he was there. And so the first one I want to read to you, and like I said, I'm going to hit you with a lot of scripture tonight, so please, I don't have anywhere for you to go. Um, just, we're just going to go quick, all right? So the very first habit is that Jesus went to church, okay? The very first habit that we can pick up in Jesus' life is that he consistently went to church. And everything, just, I'll prove to you. Luke 4.16 says this. He says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And then Luke says this, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Okay, so as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Matthew 26, 55 says this. I love this. It says, at the hour Jesus, sorry, Jesus has just been arrested. He says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. He says, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Now, obviously, church looks extremely different today in 2023 than it did uh, 2,000 years ago. Everyone understand? 
In fact, church looks different today than it did 100 years ago. It even looks different than it did 50 years ago. And it probably even looks different than it did like 20 years ago. How many of you, amen, how many of you, um, how many of you have grown up in church? Like you would say you were a church kid, like nursery. Who here was in, who, who was a kid's church kid? Not just at high praise anywhere. Kids church kids? Okay. How many of you were nursery church kids? Okay, okay. Any, um, I don't know how to go, I don't know how to go before that. Infants, babies? I feel like that's a nursery. Since you were born, you're dedicated. Yeah, see, I was not. I was not that kid, so I can't really relate to you. Josiah, you definitely were. Um, I know some of you definitely were. Um, any PKs, all the PKs in the house? Jackson's on in here. Whoop, whoop. Oh, Jason, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I'm Pat. Look at y'all. Look how y'all turned out. Um, <laughs> so my, my point is this to you, because it's easy to read them, but yeah, well, church was different and derp to derp. The point is this, though. Jesus always made it a, a habit of his, even when he was traveling, to be in the synagogue, which is church. And then he kind of makes this sassy little comment and kind of calls out the cowardice of the guys that come to arrest him and says, why are you coming? Because they came in the middle of the night uh, with like torches and swords and kind of like trying to really intimidate him. And he's like, why are you coming to rob? Why are you coming to arrest me now? Why didn't you do it in the middle of the day when I was teaching every day with the crowds around? Um, basically saying like, I've literally been teaching in the middle of town every day and you came at night to arrest me. Here's something that has... Um, I need these, but they're glaring me to death. I can't even see anyone. Y'all look like those uh, Wii characters from like 20 years ago. Something that I think Jesus makes a, a, teaches not only his disciples, but really models for us after he leaves and the church really kind of starts to take form, is that there is, there is a reason why people, um, his people are always meant to, to gather together. Okay. If it was the Israelites gathering, if it was the synagogues, and now it's church, his model for, for us has always been that whatever we accomplish, we are going to accomplish as a body. Okay? Let me read you another. This is in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 through 27. It says, if one member suffers, they're talking about the church, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If one member suffers, <laughs> and all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all are honored. That doesn't sound like a group of strangers who sit in a building once a week together, right? That doesn't, to me, that does not come across as, as some organization where we just gather together, hear a teaching, and then leave. Because if you really want to start dissecting what the New Testament church looked like, it's something far even more intimate um, and even more integrated than this. Like the early, let me, let me put it, just use this as an example. The early church was so close, I'm going to walk off this tonight, was so close and was so in this together that they went and sold everything, gave all their money to the pastors and said, here, you distribute the money amongst everyone the way you think is best. Do you understand? That would be like myself, Pastor Josh, 
Pastor Robert, tell everybody, hey, go empty your bank accounts. Go sell everything you have. Give it to us. We are now going to be the ones to make sure we'll take care. We'll make sure everyone's fed. We'll make sure your bills are paid. And we'll make sure that we can take care of the poor as much as we can. People would lose their minds. Right? There would be no, no one would respond to that. Right? Yeah, maybe, maybe some of us. But if, if on Sunday we, we said, hey, God, this is what the Lord has spoken. We're going to be like the early church. Everyone empty their bank accounts, tithe everything you have. The church will take care of it from now. We'd be called communists. We'd be called crazy. People would be running. People could not leave quick enough. Right? And, and hear me, I'm not petitioning for that. I'm not saying like that's the real godly thing to do. But what I am saying is that there was such a sense of we are going to be one body. That if, if one of us suffers, we were all going to suffer. If one of us is honored, we will all be honored. If one of us is hurting, we're all hurting, right? Because under that formula, if, if one of us is hurting, you all hurt, right? Jesus does something throughout his life that isn't really talked about a lot, but it's something you can pick up in the details, and it's this. He teaches his guys, he teaches his disciples that once he's gone, everything that happens afterwards is going to be done through the church. Peter is an apostle. Paul becomes an apostle. All these guys become apostles. If you don't know what an apostle is, an apostle is somebody that starts and plants and oversees churches. When he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, and he sends out his guys, do you know what they did? They went and started churches. Sometimes, like, through conversations with people, I think, well, they just went and told people about Jesus. That's true but they went and started churches. If you look at Peter's history, Paul, all these great guys, they did not just go somewhere, stand on a stool in the middle of the building and be like, hey, everybody, there's this guy named Christ and Jesus, and he died for you. And just expect all these people who have been living their life a completely different way, who have no idea who the God of Israel is, they went and started churches. Church is not man's idea. Church has never been man's idea. Church, now man has done some things with it, and we have changed some things, and we have tinkered some things, but God's will for your life, my life, and, and, and what he refers to more intimately as, the, as his body or as his bride has been that, I, here's what's going to happen. Every person that believes in me is going to have different anointings and giftings. If you all will work together, you'll accomplish great things. Church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the, all, all these other churches that we, we, we read about in history, it's all under this one model. Like I love what, I think that's why he specifically uses this phrase. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So individually, you are a, you are a member of the body of Christ. And I don't have, I could go all night talking about the design of the church and God's will for the church and everything like that. But I do want to hit on something before I move on just for a, a moment. A lot of times we read that and we think church, like that over there is church. Sunday morning, church. It's the adults. They're the ones with the money. They're the ones with the ability to make decisions. They're the whatever you want to call them, whatever term you want to give them. The God's will for the church is this, that we would, be, that we would seek first the kingdom. And if everyone in this room, regardless of if you are, 11? We have any 11-year-olds in here? Anyone 11? Going once? It's okay. Don't be ashamed of your age. 
We don't have any 11-year-olds? I could have swore we had an 11-year-old in here. 12? Hey, there we go. We got a few 12s. Okay, who's oldest? Not counting Cleve. Who's oldest? And not counting Travis. Not counting, um, hmm, uh, me? Okay, so there's late 20s in here. We'll just put it that way, late 20s. Um, no one in here is 30, I don't think, besides Travis. Um, not Becca. Me and Becca are 29, so deal with it. Um, but anyway, regardless of your age and regardless of what you would quote-unquote call your abilities, your anointings, your giftings, if every single person in here was united, spiritually united, that we could do great things. And hear me, I don't say great things is like for us. That, that great things could happen f- for the kingdom of God. That, that's the model. And regardless of if it's, if it's youth, if it's kids, if it is a, a whole church, whatever. But part of the reason why the church has lost so much ground is not because we don't put on great services, not because we don't have great buildings. It's simply that we do not work together. The, the individual members of the church don't do anything anymore. And the individual members of the church, have, we have, as individuals, we have become more consumers than anything. And I, let me get on my soapbox for a second. The church is not meant for you to come consume as if you would go consume a movie theater or a restaurant. In fact, I don't even really agree with the notion that the church is designed or created so that you can be spiritually fed. That's not my belief with the church because I, can't, I just want to go really far into this. But, but the church at itself is designed, is, I don't know what I just said, is designed so that people who are fed spiritually on fire can come together and as a group, as a body has many parts can operate and do great things. But my body, your body, does not operate on one organ, right? In fact, it takes one organ to mess up if we have problems. You know what I mean? Like, we don't lose five organs. Like, I'm, I'm getting along, okay? Like, we, we, we get one, and we're like, okay, we might die. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I think that the, the modern church we struggle so much is to put it in, like, the metaphorical sense, we just have organs that aren't working. But we have, those organs are present and they're sitting, but they're just there and they're just present. Like when Jackson was born, um, Jackson was born with one kidney. And he actually had two kidneys at one point. And that kidney was there, but it's not functioning. And so in the same way, it's like the church has these things in place and we can have these ideas and we have these things. But if it's just functioning, then it's kind of useless. You get what I'm saying? The church is designed and created in what its mission field and what its purpose has always been. And just go read. You need some homework. Go read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And you'll get a good idea of what God's vision is for the church today. Not just 2,000 years ago, but, but today. But hear me. If it's just a group of five or six pastors doing the teaching and the preaching, everyone comes in to get their, their meal and dips out afterwards, we're not accomplishing much. And hear me, my hope, my hope in Christ, and my hope for the lost is not, is not getting them in a church service. That is not the hope of the Christian. And I know that sounds like a little, and maybe I'm going too far down this rabbit hole, but that sounds a little like, whoa. Because we put so much emphasis, hey, get your, get your people to church, get your friends to church, Easter's coming, we're going to, push hard to get people in church. That, that is important, and I think that has its place. But my hope for the lost, my hope for the people, your friends who are not saved, 
your family members who are not saved, is not, hey, if they come to church, everything's going to work out. Guys, I have hundreds of people come through the doors of the church, sit there, and leave the exact same. My hope as a Christian is not that we can get them to hear me speak or hear Pastor Josh speak or that they can, they can hear us in worship. Now, that can do things, and I think God can work through that, but the most important thing that can happen to someone, the most important thing that's ever happened to me and what hopefully you guys has not been that I heard, I was convinced to know Jesus because I heard some sermon one day that was like, you're right, I'm convinced, let's do this. But I met Jesus as if he were a person face to face. That is the most important thing that can happen to you and happen to those around you. And that does not require being here. But if the church only operates like the church here, this is supposed to be a really short sermon, but if the church only operates like the church in this room, that is why we have confined Jesus, we have confined the Holy Spirit to our sanctuaries because it's the only time the church functions as a body. i got to keep going. This probably, this, some of you are like, dude, I don't know what the crap you're talking about. Anyway, Jesus went to church, and we'll go more into that. Maybe like a, a full night, because I want to get to this other stuff. Um, let's move on, shall we? I'm telling you guys to come to church. Y'all are in church. Y'all need to hear this, right? Right? Everyone here comes to church every week, right? Right. You're in church on Sundays and Wednesdays. Telling the church people to come to church. Sanity. All right, well, let's try this one. Jesus constantly withdrew to pray by himself constantly. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rapid read here for just a quick second. Uh, this is just literally four different scriptures within the book of Luke. And I wanted to give it all in one book, so it's not like, it's the same story, just different books. It's literally the same book that is mentioned four different times. So Luke 5, 12 says this. It, this is right after... <coughs> Luke 5, 12 through 16 says this, But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So he, the scripture is saying he was growing in popularity, he was growing in fame, and his response was this, he withdrew to desolate places to pray, he isolated places. Luke 6, 12 says this, In these days he went out to the mountains to pray all night, and he continued prayer to God. Luke 9, 18 says this, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked, How, Who do the crowds say that I am? Luke 11, 1 says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place alone, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. That's just within, like I could probably give you like 20 more. But even just in the book of Luke, and in, I'll get another one in, in Matthew, something that is consistently brought up, no matter if it's after a crazy healing or a story or after he feeds the 5,000, he's basically like, look, guys, I'm tired. I'm going by myself. Like, I'll see you all tomorrow. And he leaves, and he goes off by himself to pray. So to kind of counterbalance the you need to be together, you need to be in church, every Christian, every single Christian, no matter your age, no matter if you are just starting off or if you've been doing this for years, every Christian should have the habit of being and knowing when to withdraw to isolation to pray. If, if our prayer life and even if our worship life is only alive and only contingent when we're in church, what I just said happens. 
the Spirit of God, and, and that all of our hope comes to, we got to get them in church. Well, why do you think we put so much weight and so all of our eggs in this? If, if they come to church on Easter, they'll get saved. No doubt about it. Like, why has that become the mindset of the church? It's simply because the only time we pray, the only time we worship, the only time we read our Bible is when we're here. And so this habit kind of fixes the other habit. In fact, if, if we could get really good at this habit, that first habit would just, no one would argue, well, I don't know, church isn't that important, dirt to dirt to dirt. Church, church is not that important to most Christians because you're starving. <laughs> and church isn't that important to most Christians because you spend your life not praying, not reading, not doing anything for the kingdom, and then come to church and expect the church just to fulfill all that stuff in your life, and it doesn't happen. Anyway, Jesus constantly withdrew to pray. Constantly withdrew to pray. I mean, I know I just gave you four verses. But imagine Jesus Christ on earth for three, I'm sorry, on earth for somewhere around 33 years, three, three and a half of those years, the only time that he actually spent doing active ministry. And probably every other day, he looks at his disciples and says, hey, y'all stay here, I'll be back. I need to be by myself. Anyone here introverted? Anyone here love to be by yourself? Raise your hand. Be, don't, be, don't be afraid. All right. We know who you are. I, myself, am legitimately... Becca, I'm actually an introvert. Am I not? I am not... Oh, let's talk about this for a second. Anyone here an external processor? If you know what I mean, it means you have to verbally process what's going through your mind. Anyone here like that? You're the worst. I'm just kidding. And everyone I'm close with is an external processor. I, myself, am an internal processor. Basically, just if you don't know what I'm talking about, all that means is that my thoughts, my, my life, things that are happening to me, I process up here, and I don't need to talk them out. My wife is the complete opposite to the point where most of our conversations are, what happened at work today? Uh-huh, nothing. She's like, no, what'd they say? Like, what, what, who'd say? Should all of them. What did all of them say? And I have to relive every conversation I have so that Becca can know because she's an external processor. And myself, I've already taken care of it up here. And so if I'm ever quiet, if you ever see me quiet, it's not that I'm angry. It's not that I hate you. It's not that I just think you're the worst. It's probably because I'm just thinking in my head and I am completely oblivious to the world around me. I think Jesus was an internal processor. And I can't prove that to you, but that's just the Garrett Moreland version of Scripture right now. Genuinely, I think what happened is Jesus would get done feeding 5,000 people and be like, no one talk to me or I will probably throw a brimstone from heaven down on you, Peter. Leave me alone. I genuinely think he, for the, for the sake of those around him, said, I'll be back in 24 hours. I'm going to go pray on that mountain where I can throw things and like conjure up things that you guys don't understand and be myself. And that is how he got away from everybody. Hear me. If your life is too busy, young adults, I'm talking to you specifically. If your life is too busy and you have neglected this habit to go into your your inner room and pray, everything else is going to lose its power. So one of those verses I read to you, Jesus was off praying, and he comes back and he says, Lord, teach us how to pray. Well, I'm going to give you the Matthew 6, 6 version. 
And Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, basically shaming and kind of shunning the Pharisees who always pray outside on street corners. And he says, but when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, Jesus is telling them there's a reason. See, he didn't, they didn't travel with a mobile home. So he is saying, in your daily life, do this. Go to where it is just you and God and pray. Don't do it where everyone else is around. You don't have to do it where everyone else can hear you, see you. In fact, if you keep reading Matthew chapter 6, he even says you don't even have to go on rambling like the Pharisees do. He says you don't have to do it for five hours and use all these fancy, crazy words. He says just go pray to your father who's in secret and tell him what's on your heart. You don't have to do it for a long time because he already knows what you need anyway. He says, but go where it's just you and the Lord and pray. You know why I think he says go, go into your inner room? Because who you really are comes out when no one's looking. Who you are before God really comes out when no one's looking. And if this and this is the only time you, your relationship with the Lord is alive and you have not learned this, you have not cultivated this in your life, guys, this will be so much more if this becomes your habit. I dare you to spend the next seven days of your life, take ten minutes a day, go in your closet, go in your room, shut the door, turn off all your devices and pray for ten minutes. Do it for seven days and come back next week and tell me how church is afterwards. Tell me how church is after that. It's, it'll be amazing how much better things are in your life when you don't come before God starving every single week. You ever, like, no one in here has probably ever done this, but imagine if you went the next seven days and didn't eat. And didn't eat anything. Your next meal, you wouldn't care what it was. You're just starving, and it'd probably be gone in two seconds. Right? It, it would mean nothing to you because it just barely gets, gives you enough to keep going. You would continue to be weak. You would continue to be starving. And, you would con- and, and hungry people are desperate people, and desperate people do dumb stuff. So you spiritually starving, no wonder you were looking for, for your answers and everything else. I, I dare you, I challenge you. I challenge you, high praise. If you don't do this already, if you take anything that I say tonight, I don't, it is this. Make a habit of praying when it is just you and God and pray out loud. I dare you. It'll change your life more than a lot of things. A lot of times when I have conversations with people and they're struggling or anything, one of the first, times, one of the first things we'll ask them, how's your prayer life? Well, I don't know. If you're not talking to God, you think I spend all day talking to God for you? You crazy. I, I will in a moment. I'll pray. I'll stop and I will pray for you. I ain't in charge of your, your relationship with the Lord. And, and corporate intimacy is not personal intimacy. I have, I have many friends, and I hang out in group settings a lot. Me and Becca will hang out in group settings with other couples, other young adults, other friends a lot. We also hang out one-on-one. We, 
We... You get what I'm saying? Our intimacy, when we're alone, is much different. Yeah, it was like, oh, that's a baby. But hear me, y'all think it's gross and whatever. We're prophets, never mind. It would be ridiculous, though, if I thought that hanging out corporately, as long as I kept Becca around like, all of our friends all the time, that our relationship would be strong. That if I only talked to my wife in group settings, that we would have this most intimate relationship ever. You know when the most, I'm not pleased to understand what I'm saying. Some of the most intimate times we have together is at night, whenever she asks me how my day is and we talk about our day together. That's some of the most intimate communication we have. Is behind a closed door and we tell our kids, go away, we're having mom and dad time, we're trying to talk, this is our time to connect. And if we starved each other of that, and if I only ever talked to her in group settings, we would not have an intimate relationship. Some of you in this room, you would say you are not, don't have super close relationships with other people in this room because the only time y'all see each other is when you're in this room. Right? So imagine if you were as close to God as if you were as close to that stranger on the other side of the room that you see every week. You get what I'm saying? That's insane. And if, that is, that, if that's your relationship with the Lord is as close as some stranger in this room, that just because you go to church with them doesn't mean you have a relationship with them. You get what I'm saying? All right, let's go. Okay, last one. So Jesus withdrew consistently, um, withdrew all the time to go pray by himself. In fact, um, little, I believe so much that something spiritual happens when you withdraw into the wilderness to pray that we create, I like to create certain retreats out of that concept. And in my time in youth ministry, I've seen some amazing things happen, literally out of that, out of modeling after that belief. Um, maybe next week. But we're, I'm working on something for you high school kids to literally show you what will happen when you can unplug from your daily life and go pursue the Lord in, with nothing else around you. Anyway. All right, so last one. <clears throat> Y'all okay? Y'all all right? Good, I need a drink, so I'd ask you something. Y'all ever been to Wave? Wave plug right there. <sighs> Love some Wave. All right, last one. Last one. He was mentally disciplined. John 6, verse 38 through 40 says this says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of that, <clears throat> of all that has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The main thing I want you to take away from that, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This shouts at me because all this, really what this is saying is that even Jesus answered to somebody. Even Jesus took direction from somebody. 
See, that's what I was talking about at the beginning. Sometimes I think we think Jesus just kind of wandered around and was like, you're saved, you're healed, ha-ha. Like, I can do whatever I want. And like this magician in the streets who was just like, Oprah giving away cars. And in fact, many people actually got real close to Jesus and were never affected by him. And that's probably a sermon for a whole different crowd in a different time. But anyway, Jesus actually did... We'll move on. He came to do the will of his father who sent him. And so what, what, what I think that speaks to us, what I think how we are supposed to model that in our, in our lives is this, guys. Seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added to you. A lot of times, like going back to that consumer mentality, if we have this habit that, again, church about you, prayer is for you, all this is for you and about you. Well, no wonder most Christians are burnt out by the time you're 22 because you realize that that lie that kept you going. See, here's something. Let me put it this way. I've done this long enough, and I've watched enough. I've known some great, great God-fearing teenagers. Some anointed, gifted. If I think about it too long, I'll cry some phenomenal students of mine who all through high school were just, and they had it. And then one day, for whatever reason, it ends. Their relationship with the Lord, not them. And I've asked myself a lot over the time, like what in the world happens? And I've kind of like, I've, over the past year, I've really kind of began to, to rethink why I think, I used to think, well, it's because they go to college and college is evil. And it's the, the college system and they're just around a bunch of sinners and it's bleh. And part of me really thinks that what happens is the motivation that keeps so many young people going, and this might be some, I don't need my notes anymore, so I'm going to take these off. What keeps some of you going in your church life that keeps you coming back here, it's for you. This is for you. It helps your mental health. It helps you. It helps you with your day. And hear me, at, at, in the beginning, that's okay and that can be good. But at some point, if there is not a, a graduation of this is no longer just about you and this is about something far bigger than you, and you just continue to live this life of like, well, you know, the sermons aren't doing anything for me. This isn't doing anything for me. The church isn't doing anything for me. Well, duh, the church was never really meant to do anything for you anyway. You're supposed to meant to be a part of something that does things for a kingdom that's not your own. And I'll read that in more detail in a second. But hear me, there has got to be the spiritual um, graduation that happens where church is no longer the place where you come to be fed. And it comes a place where you are part of something far greater than you. And so Jesus models this out so perfectly because even he's always being harassed by Pharisees. He's always been asked these ridiculous questions. Peter's always smarting off. Judas is secretly trying to betray him. His dad is nowhere to be found. His own family hates him. Like, he has all these problems. He's exhausted. He is God, but he's man. I can't imagine the complexity of those frustrations. And here we are. He simply submits to his father and says, you know, I'm not here to do my will. I'm just here to, I'm here to do the will of my Father. Imagine if Christians had that mindset. I'm like, you know, I'm not, this has nothing to do with me. I'm just here, I'm here to help further a kingdom that is not my own, that I don't even fully, completely understand. Because 
I'm sure, if you don't know, Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in a desert by Satan himself. And I'm sure in those moments, Jesus' will might have looked a little bit differently than his father's will. I'm sure when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane <coughs> and was, it was crying so much that Scripture says it was as tears of blood rolling down his face. And he was basically saying, God, if, if this, he literally says to, to Father, if this is not your will, let this cup pass from me. In this moment in Gethsemane, he basically is, is you, you see this, you, you see the, you see the mountaintop where he is so ready to break because for all these years he has been obedient to the will of his father, never once arguing, never once questioning. He, I could really chase that rabbit trail, I can't. Never once does he break from that. He asks his, he, he already told Judas has already gone off to, to, to betray him. He's about to be arrested. He's asked his disciples, just stay up and pray with me. And in this moment of intimacy, when he's left the synagogue and he, he withdraws to go pray, withdrew, whatever, he literally asks his father, if there is any other way for this to happen, let's do that instead. But... If there's not, let's do it. Jesus had to have been, can confidently say, was the most probably mentally disciplined man to ever walk this earth. Ever. Because it's totally different to know what you're about to face, know the torment you're about to face, the physical torment, not only the spiritual torment that he was about to face, because Scripture literally says the father turned turned his back to his son, which is, I can't go there anyway. But Jesus willingly said, I'll do that. (coughs) If most of us knew what our faith was going to cost us in our life at the moment we accepted Jesus, we'd never take it. We'd never take it. If you could, if if at the moment of your salvation, when you were saved, um, Gage, when were you saved? Okay. So if at the moment Gage is saved in 2020, and the Lord said, hey, I'm offering this to you, but I, your life's now going to be mine. Here's what the rest of your life is going to look like, and you're going to lose a lot of things because of your faith because you're also going to have to pick up your cross and follow me daily, and you're going to have to do all these things. Man, some of us would make different decisions. There's a reason why God reveals these things to us slowly as we mature, as he determines our steps. Because if at the very beginning, how old were you in 2020? And if at 13 God said, and I don't know Gage's life, so I can't, tell you what the rest of your life's going to look like. And hear me, I'm not trying to be like, your faith's going to cost you your life. All I'm trying to do is get you to understand that Jesus, from the time he was an infant, understood what his life was going to be. He understood what was going to happen and lived with it for 33 years. No one in this room has that. No, no one in this room lives their life like, I know where this is going to go. I know where this is going to go. I know where this is going to go. There's a reason why God doesn't reveal things to us really far down the road because we'd mess it up. Let me read you one more thing and then we'll, get, we'll, we'll be done. Y'all, um, actually, I lied. Go to Hebrews 11. I've been preaching out of Hebrews 11 for the past few weeks and that's where we're going to end tonight. Um, I want to read you something <coughs> that... Uh, Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. When you're there, say here. 
13 through 16, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. I'm an ESV. 13 through 16. This is, the, this is what is going to end the goat. Travis, you guys can go ahead and come up. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. For the past four weeks, we've been talking about the hall of faith, and we've been talking about these, these, these men and women who accomplish great things. Noah saved mankind by being obedient, building the ark. N- Moses, with all of his baggage and all of his mess-ups and all of his insecurities, faced Pharaoh and led the people uh, out of Egypt. In Hebrews 11, we talked about it last week. Generationally, God did and reveals himself as the God of generations by always saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, ending kind of talking about this, this mental discipline, I guess is the best way to put it, is that Jesus submitted to things that weren't even his own idea. And Jesus accomplished the the most important thing to ever happen in our life simply by submitting to the Father. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says this. It says, talking about the men that I just referenced and we've talked about the past few weeks, that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city read it to you one more time. I'm going to read this part. It says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. This is exactly what I'm trying to talk about. Jesus set his eyes on the land, on the place where he knew he was going. Seeking a homeland that was far greater than what he already had. High praise, YTH, I don't care your age, I don't care your background, I don't care what brought you into this room. Something that could immediately change your life is if your eyes and if your focus was not on some immediate promise or fulfillment that God has laid out before you, but understanding that everything that happens after you, as long as you go to heaven, as long as you're with God forever, Lord, do whatever you want with my life. Part of the issue with Gen Z is that there is salvation, but there is not surrender. There is a lot of salvation that takes place, but there is very little surrender. And here's what I mean. It means that we come before God and we accept and we consume salvation. We consume and we want our ticket out of here, but we do not surrender over our life. It's why we are losing ground as Christians. Is because not until there is surrender then can God say, okay, now I can do something great with your life. We've been talking about great people for four weeks. And every, every single one of them did great things because there was great surrender. Even Jesus surrendered over life and said, God, Father, I'll do whatever you want. I've, even Jesus surrendered and submitted to the Father. And God did something incredible in it. 
But until there is genuine surrender in your life, God won't be able to do much with your life. You get what I'm saying? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. Those of you that just constantly think about your old life is why you still have an opportunity to return to your old life. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Everyone stand to your feet. I'm, I'm simply going to pray tonight. We can uh, take some time. We can go back into worship if we want. I know I kind of gave you a, a lot of information. last verse that I just read to you if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out they would have had an opportunity to return until you stop thinking about this life and stop thinking about this world and stop thinking about your greatness and your dreams and completely surrender and completely submit going to be right where you're at for a long time. There's much salvation, but there's little surrender. Everyone bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to pray for you tonight. Father, I pray that you would teach us and show us what needs to be surrendered. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would tug on everyone's heart right here in this moment. So many of us, we can have great dreams and great ideas and we can even make great bold statements about this is what I want to do in life. This is who I want to be. This is what I want to become. Father, help us to be like those that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Our eyes set on a homeland that is, that is not on this earth. Jesus, help us to surrender. Help us to be like you. Help us to have the habits that you had, Jesus. For those of us that have, that have been neglecting your house, who have been neglecting taking up the responsibility and the role of being in the church, show us your heart. For those of us that, that have been neglecting have not been praying, who've not been, who have been afraid of isolation, who are too busy. Whatever our excuse is, Father, teach us and show us the power of, of having an inner room, of praying when no one else is looking. Show us what real intimacy looks like. Father, for those of us that, that we haven't surrendered, we're still in control. We're still in the driver's seat. We are still we are still trying to live out our best life here on earth and whatever happens in heaven happens. Lord, I pray that we would fix 
our eyes on you, Jesus. Help us to run this race. One of my absolute, my absolute favorite piece of scripture says, to live as to live as Christ, to die is gain. Meaning to live every breath I take, Jesus, it's yours. The only gain I have left, the only thing I have left to, to gain in this life will be on my last breath. And that will be when I come into eternity with you forever. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Jesus, I surrender my life. everyone just raise your hands Um, I want to take a moment for surrender so if you're in the room and and you would acknowledge that there are some things that need to be surrendered there's some will there are some dreams there is even some decision making that needs to be surrendered over to the king we're going to do that right now repeat after me Jesus we let go seek after you and you alone Father tonight we surrender teach us and show us what it means to be yours do something with my life that only you could do in Jesus name we pray Amen and Amen YTH we love you Thank you for downloading today's message. Again, we hope that it encouraged you, blessed you, and edified you. If you are a high school, middle school, or even a uh, young adult in the Panama City area, we would love to have you come be a part of our services at High Praise Panama City. Our YTH services are every Wednesday at 7 o'clock. The mix, our pre-service time, starts at 5 o'clock. We would love to have you out. If not, find a way to connect with us on Instagram at hp.yth. We would love to connect with you in some way. And God bless.